politics, music, technology, roller coasters, golf carts, and the greatest country on earth. National Review's new show, the Charles C. W. Cook Podcast, that's me, explores the scenic highways and byways of American political and cultural life. Featuring interviews with leading writers, thinkers, and public figures, every episode offers a fresh perspective on the promises and challenges facing America. Don't miss out. Tune into the Charles C. W. Cook podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. Iowa is upon us and Biden hits the hooties. We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Madeline Maddie Kearns, and the notorious MBD, Michael Brendan Doherty. You are, of course, listening to a Nashville podcast. Our sponsors this episode are C-SPAN, Site Neutrality, and the new book, The New Deal's War on the Bill of Rights. More about all of them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere. From Spotify to iTunes, and if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So MBD, we had probably a forgettable debate between Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley in the final days here before Iowa. This is a matchup that a lot of people have been waiting for. They've wanted the debate stage to, to whittle down, which it steadily has. Uh, but it wasn't uh, a lot of it was not uh, particularly enlightening or edifying or pleasant to watch. DeSantis came out of the the gate with a, a sledgehammer um, uh, directed at at Haley, and and they just went back and forth with this uh, just really impossible to, to follow set of accusations about lies that each of them were telling. They settled out of that a little bit you know, towards the middle, and I, I thought. DeSantis, even though I've been critical of him in prior debates for not being willing to, to mix it up and instead just using his time as an occasion to give little campaign speeches, I thought he was better when he was a little more positive and enunciating his, his vision. And I thought uh, Nikki kind of lost on points. Obviously, she has mocked heavily for mentioning this website 16 times, rondesantislies.com. And she has a tendency I think both of them do, but she has a real tendency to talk too fast. And there's some answers I just, I couldn't, I'm sure I, I read them and, and they make sense, but I just couldn't really follow them. It's just this too much. Right. And that's one thing presidential candidates always need to learn is kind of slow down your uh, speech. So they all should take a page from, from Charlie. But what did you make of this, this showdown? Uh, I thought it was bad for the party. Um, I thought it was bad for the two candidates. I thought, um, you know, they are, are both so far behind Trump. Um, when you look at the, the polls in Iowa and then the polls outside of New Hampshire nationally, you know, each of them need to kind of give a compelling vision of why they should be president, right? Like why, um, what they want to do, where they want to take the country, what are the huge, you know, material problems that Americans face and how they want to address them, both like uh, policy-wise and, you know, what kind of attitude they want to bring to the office and the, the tenor of American life. Um, and instead, you just got, like you said, like these ticky-tack, you know, this... Uh, fight about things they've said over the last four or five months or in their commercials. And, um, you know, it was almost like incomprehensible to uh, a huge, I, I imagine a huge portion of the audience found it incomprehensible. Like, are there, are we supposed to remember exactly what Nikki Haley said about trans issues uh, five years ago? Um, you know, or are we just supposed to, what are we supposed to take from those accusations? It, 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 I didn't get much out of it. Um, you know, you you barely even saw contrasts. Where I, I thought the moderators did a, a bad job of, you know, you could have allowed them or encouraged them through the questions to talk about an issue where they disagree. So say on Ukraine 
what you could have allowed that, you know, uh, conversation to happen or a debate to happen on that issue where they would have drawn a real policy contrast with each other, but we barely even got that. And so I thought Donald Trump was the winner of the debate. Um, sadly, I, you know, I thought, you know, on the whole, I agree with you. DeSantis looks very prepared. He look he comes across as a man who does his homework. And to me, Nikki Haley, I'm sure some people found her energetic and maybe personable. Uh, I found her, you know, she seemed like just tired and annoyed. Um, mm-hmm. me. Yeah. And I can understand why. Um, yeah. The, 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 the shots of her when she wasn't speaking, yeah, she always seemed exasperated and annoyed and somewhere around halfway in, she began to say she was being demeaned by DeSantis, which was ridiculous. So it wasn't her best performance, but this, this Maddie, I think is the big point. You, in these debates, you need someone without Trump on the stage to be the master of these debates, to be head and shoulders above the the others as a compelling uh, performer, or have you know huge moments all the time, and just just no one was like that. And the problem is among the problems, Trump is bigger than the the debates. So so every other candidate, they're desperate to get in the debates, and it'd be a disaster for them if they weren't in the debates. Trump doesn't have to show up for the debates and can still be the bigger guy and the bigger performer. You know, maybe it's not a fair test because viewers are going to, conservative viewers are going to tend to watch Fox over CNN uh, more uh, than CNN in any given circumstance. But Trump's uh, town hall with Brett Baer and Martha McCallum outrated this debate. Uh, so he's just a bigger showman and more compelling on, on TV. And, and none of these, uh, these other candidates have a, have a big personality. Not, you know, not the most important thing, but it's, it's part of this uh, process has always been part of politics. And I was just struck by DeSantis came off the stage and had an interview with Anderson Cooper where he actually seemed relaxed. It's literally the first time I've seen him relaxed in this entire campaign. Um, so Phil Klein was pointing out to me that he's, I think he had an interview with Laura Ingram a week or so ago where he, he sort of seemed the same way, kind of a, a different guy. But the, the contrast from how he was on the stage, which is kind of tight and over-rehearsed, I think both candidates probably set some sort of record for the most rehearsed lines ever said at any debate. Both of them are highly scripted. But then he comes off and he's talking about his five-year-old being in his wife's lap, you know, during the whole debate and staying awake and how great that is. And um, it just kind of seemed natural. But he's he hasn't seen that during the entire campaign. I think part of this is just that it must be demoralizing to be in a race for second place. Um, I mean, for DeSantis, I understand why he was very stressed going into that debate. Haley is ahead of him now, according to a new Suffolk poll um, in, in in Iowa, which is really just must be utterly demoralizing to have spent that much um, time, money, energy, and also just to have the the stronger conservative record, certainly socially conservative record. Um, you know, DeSantis was once Trump's most formidable opponent, and and now and now he's you know. The real risk of him coming in third. To your point about the the charisma deficit, I think that we noticed uh, just how much entertainment value Vivek Ramaswamy and Chris Christie were providing on the debate mm-hmm. stage. I mean, it was uh, yeah, just I almost I hated myself for it, but I almost missed Vivek. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, when you have somebody like that, even if they're obnoxious, um, but they are a good talker, and the other people can play off them and have their moments. But I was trying to think, you know, what were the standout moments from this debate? There was a lot of bickering. There was a lot of pettiness. Really, not projecting the kind of image you want for a presidential candidate. Michael says it's about having a vision, but it's also about appearing to be magnanimous. This was something that Trump, um, obviously insincerely, but did very well in his town hall. You know, he had that very funny line about. Chris Christie, um, giving him reason to like him because of his hot mic comments. He had a, a very skillful interaction with a, a pro-life um, voter who asked him a, a question about his record. And um, again, like I'm, I'm not giving him points for sincerity here, but it was a skillful political answer. And he had her sort of eating out the palm of his hand by the end of it. We didn't really get that in the DeSantis-Haley debate. I mean, we had a couple of of flashpoints, they you know clashed on immigration. I, I think DeSantis has a stronger record there. They clashed on Ukraine. We've talked about that before. You know, uh, Haley said nobody knows what DeSantis believes. Unfortunately, that does kind of seem true um, a lot of the time. And then they they did attack Trump, but they 
they, this was overshadowed by how much they were attacking each other. Um, and again, it's just a reminder again and again that this is a race for second place. In some ways, it feels irrelevant. And it certainly feels irrelevant when you have this uh, alternative performance from from Trump, uh, which has much higher rating, ratings and people are cheering and saying, I love you uh, when he's on the stage. Charlie. Well, Rich, I'm sure you will forgive me a football analogy, given how much this is on my mind of late. I think one of the problems with Ron DeSantis. So, so, so who's who, who's the team that was leading for most most of the year? And then <laughs> the Thank you. DeSantis, I, I deserve this. I, de- I deserve all of these barbs. I've done it to you for two years. But no, I was going to say that if you make a playoff run in football or really in any sport, you're at all times a little bit nervous that just something's going to go wrong. Everything has to go right for you to get there. You, you can't have a disastrous lapse. You can't have a bad game and recover it next week. And I think DeSantis, right from the beginning of his presidential run, has thought like that. But it's not true mm-hmm. in presidential politics. It's true in sports. You really do have to be perfect if you're going to go all the way through a season, get into the playoffs, make and win the Super Bowl. You don't in politics. Now, I have heard from a lot of people that DeSantis is more relaxed on the stump of late. Maybe three or four days ago, this new Ron DeSantis showed up, the same one you're referring to that you saw on TV, who was not like that during the debate, but who has been like that in interactions with voters during his speeches and in informal cable news segments. It's too late. He can't be a new guy on the Friday, January 12th, when the the first caucus is Monday. He should have been like that all along, but he hasn't. At every point, and I think this is true of Nikki Haley as well, at every point, he seems to have been worried that if he steps out of line or makes one mistake or misses his cue, he's going to be knocked out of the playoffs. And it's obviously hurt him. You know who doesn't think like that? Who often should think like that, but who doesn't? Is Donald Trump. Yeah. Donald Trump just says what he thinks. Now, look, this is in the defense of Donald Trump. Do not misunderstand me. I'm not for Trump. I hope he loses, and I'm not voting for him. But he has worked that out, that being calm and being who you are and being willing to be taken up and down on the undulations of political fortune can work. And it makes you more relatable and likable than if you seem at all points as if you're terrified that you're going to forget your lines. To address the earlier point you made, which was that the debate looked like the runners-up bracket and compared to Trump, it was less of a spectacle, less watched, less important, and so on. I dare say that that's true. I would like to see the Republican Party behave like a party. I understand that in America, the parties are more intertwined with government and law than in other countries. In most countries, parties are private. Then they put forward candidates for public office. In America, the system is a strange hybrid where primaries are run by states and registration is inextricably linked to when and where citizens can vote and so on and so forth. But that can be changed. I think the Republican Party, especially, needs to start thinking of itself as an institution that has some control over its future. Now, you cannot tell people who to vote for and you shouldn't try. But you can, whether this takes legislation or not, set rules that hold, for example, that those who enter into a presidential primary have to promise not to run as an independent, have to promise to back the eventual winner, and have to show up at the debates. I'm not disputing your analytical take on Trump's appeal, but it should not be the case that Trump can say, as he has from the beginning, 
I'm running a parallel campaign for the Republican nomination. I won't show up at the Republican debate. I'm doing my own thing down the road on a different channel. That's crazy. The Republican Party should find that unacceptable. Republican voters should find that unacceptable. Has it worked? Yes, it has. But that's why you set rules. You put people in the same conferences, in the same organizations, and you ask them to abide by the regulations so that people can judge them side by side. This has not been good for the Republican Party. It's been extremely good for Donald Trump. And I hope that going forward, the parties will try to wrest back some control over this so that we don't have these parallel primaries in which one candidate with all these advantages can essentially opt out and thereby not be judged in any competitive circumstance. How many times have we said this during this primary on this podcast when trying to evaluate them? Well, there was one set of people, and then there was Trump. Well, we don't know how Trump is now at the age of 77 or however old he is when he's pushed. Well, Chris Christie never got the opportunity to present to him his objections. Well, the moderators never got to ask him the same questions that they asked of Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis. I think that's unacceptable. It's happened. We will now live with the fruits of it. But I think it's unacceptable going forward, and I really would like to see it change. Yeah, so further on on DeSantis, uh, when I was mentioning this Anderson Cooper interview, and he was talking about his, his son at the end, I think the obvious play, if you're in a setting like that, is to say something like, you know, I know this is a high stake, right at the beginning, this is a high stakes uh, moment, you know, it's uh, a lot hinges on this debate. And the standard for me, by the way, is I got my five-year-old son there in the front row, it's going to be a late night for him. If I ke can keep him awake the whole night, I've won. If he falls asleep, I don't care what else I, I say. I'm a failure, you know, and, and people laugh a little bit, maybe not uproariously. And it's just a light thing. And actually, if, if people laugh a little bit, it, it, it relaxes you, too. So you're not as tight, you know, uh, DeSantis seemed really tight. I mean, he always seems tight, as we just discussed, but he seemed really tight initially. The sidelong glances, like the first half an hour at Nikki Hill, kind of made me nervous just thinking how, how nervous it, it, it he, he seemed. Um, but he's just he's incapable of that. I don't know why they, you know. He's not. We were talking um, before we started recording about the show Brooklyn Nine Nine and how inherently funny uh, Adam Sandberg is. Ron DeSantis is never going to be that. But I don't know why Andy, he couldn't just do Andy Sandberg. Sorry, what did I say? Adam. Oh, a Andy. Um, I, I don't know why you just couldn't have done a boot camp. Here, here's how to tell a, a few light lines and and done it, you know. But but uh, he didn't. And t even Ted Cruz. T Ted Cruz. Uh, you know, often when he speaks, it's applause line after applause line after applause line, right? And that's what um, oh, DeSantis yeah. has been trying to do the entire campaign. But even Cruz, you know, I went back and looked at 16. He played around with BuzzFeed News when he did their, did an editorial meeting there and did the Simpsons impressions. And it's just unimaginable DeSantis even attempting that kind of thing. And then finally, and, and I'll stop and we'll, we'll get, get to some exit questions about the, the uh, potential results in, in Iowa, uh, someone from the DeSantis operation was telling me they have some service, and I, don't quote me on this. I, I'm messing up the details, I'm sure, but it tracks all the mentions of the, of the candidates and then estimates how much it would cost if you're paying for that level of attention. And on the average day, I think you know DeSantis again. I'm probably making up the numbers, but like gets five million dollars worth of attention. A good day, maybe eight. On an average day, Trump's getting sixty million, and on a good day, getting a hundred million. And I turned on Fox after. The, the, the next day after the debate, no mention of the debate. Maybe you can say, oh, that's just, you know, the debate was on CNN, so they don't want to mention it. And it's all in front of the courthouse in this civil uh, business fraud trial. And then I go over to CNN. It's all about, it, they're in front of the courthouse, no mention of the debate in front of the courthouse. Um, so that's just been a, obviously a huge factor in this. But MBD, let's put it all out there, four days or whatever it is before the Iowa caucuses, your prediction of uh, the order of finish and the percentages that um, the, the top three candidates will, will get. Uh, uh, we can assume they're the top. Let's, let's assume for the sake of argument, they'll be the top three. I guess the, the worst nightmare for DeSantis would be slipping into, into fourth. But where will Trump, DeSantis, and Haley finish? I mean, I'll just go with the polls right now. Um, and it'll be one Trump, two Haley, three DeSantis. Um, percentages? Um, that's where I'm a little nervous because right now the weather forecast for Iowa is like mm -hmm. some insane, like wind chill of minus 26. 
And reportedly, Donald Trump campaign is already starting to downplay expectations for the, um, you know, the total result, thinking that because he's such a huge front runner, his supporters are the ones most likely to bail out in bad weather. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I'll say DeSantis, 10, Haley, mm. uh, Haley, 17, mm-hmm. uh, Donald Trump, all but, you know, uh, 40, I don't know, 55. Something like that. <laughs> that's low. That's low for Trump. That, that's the. Uh, that, that's the. The. Uh, he'd be at sixty without the, the bad weather. Something like that. Yeah. I mean, I think I wow. think everyone else is going to fade out. Wow. All right. It's bold, Maddie. What do you got? Um, I'm going to depart slightly from the polls and um, say that it will be Trump, DeSantis, really, um, and that uh, Trump will be between 40 and 50, DeSantis will be between 20 and 30, and Haley will be between 10 and 20. Wow. Mm-hmm. All right. Ranges, but that's, uh, that's a pretty optimistic DeSantis scenario at the moment. The yeah, best case scenario for him. <laughs> yeah. If you got anywhere close to 30, I think that's uh, that'd be great for him. Charlie? I think it's going to be Trump, then DeSantis, then Haley. I think Trump will be under 50. I think DeSantis might be at 20. Haley, 15 to 17, not too far behind DeSantis. <clears throat> so I'm more with MBD. I'll go 51 Trump, 23 Haley, 18 wow. DeSantis. Oh, wow. Okay. So does DeSantis drop out if you're right, Rich? Has to, right? That's my next exit ex- question ah, is, is uh, will DeSantis drop out next week? Yes or no, MBD? Um, yes. Maddie? Not based on my predictions. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> if uh, if yours are be, right. It's going to be DeSantis press release, right? Right after Sarah produces this, puts it out. Maddie Kearns predicts <laughs> up to 30% yeah. for Ron yeah. DeSantis in New Hampshire. He has momentum. <laughs> Perhaps wishful thinking, but... Um, yeah, no, if, if you're if you're right, then yes, I think he drops out before you hear Sure. He's talking as if he's not going to, but I can't see how it would be unsustainable if he came in third in Iowa. So I think he'd have to, in part because where would the money come from? Yep. So, sorry, what was your range for DeSantis again, Charlie? I think you'd get about 20, and then I think Haley will get between about 15 and 17, and I think Trump will be under 50. Yeah, so I think in any scenario except for the upside of Maddie's, he'll have to drop out very soon afterwards, pro- probably next week. The money will drop out. You know, he's at 5% in some polls in New Hampshire. Even if he gets 20 and is in second in Iowa, they can tell themselves, you know, this is a great victory over Nikki Haley and they're second, which is better than third. Um, no one else finished, finished better than Iowa except for Donald Trump. But there's just, he's, he may be, unless he really surprises on the upside, he's a zombie. I mean, he, he, it's hard to see a, a path. He's very weak in New Hampshire and needs some huge bump, which again, a distant second won't, won't get him. And then he's, He's sort of nowhere in South Carolina as well. He's at eleven percent, I think, in the polling averages. So he, he's gonna he's gonna go from distant second in Iowa to fourth or fifth in New Hampshire, and then win South Carolina, or or and then go to third in South Carolina and somehow win Super Tuesday. It's just it's fantastical, and none of this gives me any pleasure. I I, I wish him well, but I think that's just the the reality. How about Nikki Haley, MBD? When when will she? Drop out after New Hampshire and before South Carolina, after South Carolina, after after Super Tuesday, or she won't because she'll uh, take it all the way to convention or win the nomination. Um, I'll say after South Carolina, um, 
But there's a possibility she tries to just she just keeps her name on there the whole way through and collects delegates and you know in a in a race for second place you know um, you know just talks up her issues as much with as much media as she can get even after he's the mathematical you know lock, after he locks it up mathematically it's possible. Maddie, um, I think after South Carolina, I think she's uh, got a lot of hope. Uh, for that, so she'll hold out till then. Try. We're assuming here that DeSantis is out, are we? No, you can you can assume whatever you want. Well, um, assuming he's out, I don't think she does. I saw somebody on Twitter the other day sardonically asking what the plan was, and then as a proposition, this person said to stay in, racking up losses in the hope that Donald Trump's criminal trials eventually make him unelectable? Well, yeah, actually. I don't think that's a terrible strategy, especially given that she provides a much more obvious contrast than Ron DeSantis does and could plausibly win different people within the party. I could absolutely see Nikki Haley, if DeSantis is out after Iowa, if Nikki Haley, say, comes second in Iowa doing pretty well in New Hampshire, going to South Carolina, losing to Trump, and then saying, I'm going to be the alternative if this bizarre situation in which we find ourselves ends in an unusual place. I I don't think that would be crazy at all. I also don't think that she would run out of money in that circumstance, especially if she could convey that to the people providing it. I think she, uh, I'm going to be optimistic for her and say it's af- after South Carolina. I, I think I think even if she wins New Hampshire, she's probably going to lose by double digits in, in South Carolina. And I, I think would have to, have to drop after that. Final exit question, MBD. Ron DeSantis and or Nikki Haley will be leading candidates for the Republican presidential nomination in 2028. Yes or no? It's funny. I was going to ask you if you didn't ask me. Um, I'll say yes. um, I think DeSantis is going to put so many more points on the board in Florida in the next couple of years. Um, And I think a lot of Trump supporters also look at him as an heir anyway, even if they're not willing to pick him this, this time. I think they do look they do like him. That's what the polls suggested throughout this race, which is that he was their second choice. So yeah, I think he's still, I think he's still a player. I don't think he gets mocked to death after this. Maddie. Uh, Yeah, I I agree with that. I think um, we've seen a lot in Trump voters saying that they like DeSantis, but it's not his turn, which implies that he does have a turn. It's just not now. <laughs> You're yeah, so see- optimistic about Ron DeSantis. <laughs> oh, so, uh, yeah, um, I see a good future for him, and 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 yeah, Haley as well, possibly. Charlie, I think the answer is likely no. In that, mm. if if Donald Trump wins, it seems unlikely to me that the Republican Party will go back to those candidates he beat. If Donald Trump loses then it will be more likely that Republicans will ask what they should have done rather than nominate Donald Trump. That's not guaranteed. It's possible Donald Trump will be the nominee in 2028 too, and we will live this forever a la Groundhog Day. (laughs) But if Donald Trump loses, then Haley and DeSantis will have a better shot. The problem is, by 2027, DeSantis will be out of office. He'll be term limited. Florida already has two senators, neither of whom seem to want to resign or retire. And someone else, whose name we may not know by now, will become the de facto resistance to the Democratic president, whoever that is at that point, who won or who was the beneficiary of the person who won instead of Donald Trump. So I can't 
see a great case for either DeSantis or Haley staying as relevant as they were when this began, although it's not impossible if Trump loses the presidential election. Yeah, I agree with Charlie. I think the answer is no. I think DeSantis is never going to be as big a figure as he was a year or so ago. Easy to forget now because the dissent has been so steady. And a lot of it was connected to his really exceptional handling of COVID. So unless there's there's some, and let's hope there's not ter- terrible national catastrophe that everyone else mishandles, but DeSantis gets right in, in Florida. I just I just don't see him ever picking up that that mojo again. And this is going to be you know, it was hard running against Trump. It was really hard running against Trump. And I do not buy the idea. I've talked to some people to say he shouldn't have run. I, I think he should he, he should have run. And he did the right thing. And this was a, a service. And there was some chance he could have beaten Trump if Trump looked as weak as he, he did initially after the 2022 midterms. But I, saw, I think it's going to be really hard for him. And also Nikki Haley. I mean, it's going to be uh, so long since she's she's been in, in public service. And either that, that element of the party is still... A, a relatively small plurality, in which case you're not Nikki Haley and riding it to um, the nomination or or ex- expands in, in unpredictable ways, in which case there'll be other more current uh, Republicans competing uh, for it. Uh, so I, 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 I and, and just a lot's going to happen. It's a long time. There's going to be a Veep choice, maybe a vice president. Uh, for for Republicans, you know, that will be the, the heir apparent. So my answer is also... No, we will know more when we record next on Tuesday. At least we'll know more about Iowa and the shape of this race. With that, let's hear from our first sponsor this episode, our friends at C-SPAN. As we are just discussing, we are now in January and the first caucusing and voting is about to begin. C-SPAN is the place in this environment, especially for political campaign enthusiasts with unfiltered coverage surrounding the early primaries and caucuses, as well as speeches from key battleground states. Whether you're interested in your state's race or want to follow all the political events, you can get immediate access to what the candidates are saying, plus nominating results in real time with the free mobile app C-SPAN Now. That's C-SPAN Now. Or watch live on the C-SPAN network. C-SPAN, as I always say, is just a great public service, totally, literally unfiltered coverage of these campaigns and just a, a great way to, to get an idea of what's happening on the ground without actually having to go to the trouble of being on the ground yourself and freezing in places like Des Moines, Iowa, MBD, big news overnight. We finally, finally hit the Hooties who were really humiliating us in the Red Sea uh, creating major disruptions, this ma- major world commercial artery, and we were just sort of tis- tisking and, and warning. So they they got one final warning, and then we really did uh, hit them. What do you make of it? Um, it's it was an embarrassing situation, and um, I was with our colleague Noah Rothman, and in sort of wondering how long the administration could possibly go on without doing something. Um, I am not sure that this is going to be effective. Um, the Houthis are, a, you know, a, um, are still non-state actors technically, even though they basically control Yemen, uh, almost all of it. Um, although a lot of it's ruled by warlords that that the Houthis are kind of in league with. Um, the Houthis survived nine years of bombardment from the Royal Saudi Air Force and only got stronger and have kind of become experts at this um, fire and then dash style of engagement. Um, I honestly think if we want to deter the Houthis from firing at commercial ships or at our ships, I I actually think we may have to we may have better luck engaging with their sponsors uh, in Iran. Um, just state actors are easier to deter. They have more to lose. Um, there are more buttons to push. So I, I just don't expect firing uh, a few rockets. Uh, you know, oftentimes airstrikes are are, are basically like. You do them as a favor to your spokesman. 
so you, you've given them something to say the next mm-hmm. day when they're asked what's yeah. going on. And you always see the footage of the of the uh, missiles coming off the destroyer or the, the, the jets, you know, f- flying off the aircraft carrier. It gives, gives you a, a kind of adrenaline rush. I was watching one of those th- this morning on X, you know, and it feels like we really heard them, MBD. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Charlie, you are tend to be skeptical of the legal bases of these kind of operations, which are almost routine uh, p- part of uh, American foreign policy. Where are you on on this one? Oh, I'm a big Congress guy. You will almost always hear me saying or read me writing that the president, whoever that president is, needs to ask Congress and didn't. But in this case, it's the first time when the argument that I always get back when I write that is true. Normally what happens is people say, no, 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 the president has certain inherent powers when American force is at stake and can respond if American troops, of whom he is a commander-in-chief, are put under fire. And then they try and broaden that and they lawyer it up so that it applies to preemptive attacks somewhere where there's really no threat. It's the foreign policy equivalent of shouting fire in a crowded theater, which was an analogy for anti-war protests, of all things. Well, in this case, yeah, the president can do this because there were people all around the world firing at American ships, some of which had American troops on them. I think this is the first time I've ever been convinced by that case. I'm glad we did this. I think we should have done it a lot sooner. This is why we have a government. This is why we have a military. This is the one part of my tax bill that I don't mind paying is to ensure that international commerce and the movement of people and American naval supremacy is kept unimpeded. Good for the Biden administration. It's three weeks late. I wish I hadn't been bullied into doing it, but uh, you will find no complaints from me here whatsoever. So, Maddie, a, 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 in a totally different context, a, a small group that has been creating disruption out uh, all out of proportion of its numbers and should be dealt with forcefully and have not to this point are these protesters who have taken to cutting off uh, highways and blocking access to airports, which is absolutely maddening for any of the, the people caught up in this disruption who you know aren't uh, driving to LaGuardia because it's it's fun or in a nice uh, s- Sunday drive um, and creates inherently dangerous situations where you have motorists angry, uh, maybe feeling threatened as their cars are surrounded by these people and you know maybe thinking, I just need to get out of here. And then you have someone driving at, at high, high speeds with, with a lot of people in the middle of the roadway. We, we've seen this this play out in uh, uh, var- various places in, in recent years. So what, what do you make of this phenomenon? Yeah, so, I mean, it's, as you say, a different context, but it's the same principle, which is that you have to be able to assess the threat level and respond proportionately. And unfortunately, that's not happening in, in the case of these these protests. Um, the Okay, for a lot of people, it will just be an inconvenience. Inconveniences range in, in different um, sizes, of course. If you're trying to get on a on an airplane, maybe a, a relative has just died. Yes, that's that's an inconvenience, but it's actually, you know, it's it's pretty life changing for you if you 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 can't be there with your family or or whatever it is. But in some cases, it's a genuine life or death emergency. I mean, there would have been ambulances backed up there. Um, there could have been any number of other types of emergency situations, and so you need to respond forcefully. Um, and unfortunately, in, in New York, at least, many of these people blocking key infrastructure got released with desk appearance tickets, basically facing misdemeanor charges. Um, that does not work with disincentivizing them to uh, from doing this again. Um, so, and, and as you say, in, in some cases, if if we, we appear too weak on this, if, the, if law enforcement appears too weak on this, then people will resort to vigilante justice and they will take the law into their own hands. And that is not a good situation either. So yeah, there's, there's an absolute case here for, for responding with force. MBD, exit question to you. The Hooties will be deterred. Yes or no? 
No. Charlie. Yeah. Uh, we need to keep doing this until they are deterred. But what, will they be deterred by this this attack? I think they'll be somewhat deterred. Maddie, we have a I no think, and a very judicious, somewhat deterred. I think they will be some, somewhat deterred. I mean, the, the nature of their ideology uh, means that they will not necessarily approach, approach this rationally and, and keep at it. But I think they will be somewhat deterred. But more importantly, they will be um, more effectively neutralized. And that is what what they're trying to achieve here. Yeah, I don't think uh, somewhat deterred is crazy. I think that they'll be somewhat deterred, but probably not ultimately deterred. And I think it's probably going to take hitting some Iranian assets. People mentioned Reagan sinking half of the Iranian Navy. I don't know how many ships that was in the 1980s, but I think you're going to need something similar to really get the, deliver the message to the, the higher ups in this situation. With that... Let's hear from our second sponsor of this episode, Site Neutrality. Republicans are leading on healthcare and fighting to prevent a big hospital takeover of your local doctor's office. Did you know hospitals are being paid more than independent doctors for the same services, which leads to increased cost to patients and taxpayers? For example, the average cost of biopsy is $146 with an independent doctor, while big hospitals charge a whopping $791 for the same procedure. Hospitals are being given a monopoly by unfair government pricing that puts your hometown doctor out of business and raises healthcare costs for everyone. Healthcare should not just cost 57% more because you went to the hospital instead of your local doctor. Say no to consumer rate hikes. Say no to government waste. Say no to hospital monopolies. Sign up today to tell Congress no to unfair pricing at siteneutrality.com. Once again, that's site. S-I-T-E, neutrality.com, and stop hospital monopolies. So, Charlie, we got this, uh, we got a, a lot of legal action with Trump. We'll just hit on one aspect of it today that has uh, great import for our system of government, uh, ultimately, and do, does, does involve a, a key ambiguity, which is the question of whether a former president has criminal immunity. The Supreme Court has ruled that uh, a president has immunity for his official acts um, from civil lawsuits. The question here is whether a president would have immunity for his official acts from criminal liability for obvious reasons. Trump wants to maintain that the answer is yes, he does. There is arguments before a three-judge panel, uh, the D.C. Circuit, that he's, Trump's going to lose on, on this question, clearly, in front of this panel, but there was an embarrassing moment for Trump's lawyer when the judges, as, as you would in such an appellate argument, kind of pushed their case to its logical extreme and asked, well, so if Trump uh, drones a, a political opponent, does that mean that he can't be, uh, can't be prosecuted for what's clearly a criminal act? Oh, it wasn't droning. I think it was sending SEAL, SEAL Team 6 to, to go assassinate. Oh, much better than political opponent. Yeah. More, more, the <laughs> personal touch. <laughs> Well, I don't think the question of whether a former president has this immunity is difficult at all. The answer is no. I think the question of whether a sitting president does is actually quite difficult. Now, people get very upset when you say this because they think what you're saying is that you want a dictator. But actually, this is a question of structure. This is a question of separation of powers. The problem with the American system of government, as it relates to the culpability of the president is that the president is in charge of the branch that would be necessary to prosecute him. And therefore, he ends up prosecuting himself. We saw a small version of this with the investigation into Russiagate, where in effect, the president was being asked to use the people who are under his command to look into whether or not he did something wrong. That's crazy. In no other circumstance would we accept that. If you read about a criminal trial in a county in Georgia that operated like that, in which the person who was under investigation was in charge of the investigation, you'd laugh. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that the president should be immune from consequences. We have a system in place by which the president can be punished and removed. That system is impeachment. Congress is in charge of that. Congress, though, cannot prosecute a president. It can only remove a president and disqualify a president. Is that a problem? Yeah. If you take the reductio ad absurdum that you outlined, that the president sends SEAL Team 6 
to assassinate his opponent. Congress would, I assume, impeach him and disqualify him from office. Perhaps a state would be able to get involved in prosecuting him. The federal government probably would not. That's the system. I mean, that's sometimes the answer with America's constitution. That's the system. We we have holes in it. We have an amendment process. Uh, the 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 consequences of that are ugly, but they are are real. And I think that we have seen these these knots being tightly tied in recent years. This, this question of what can a president's administration do to the guy at the top of it has been a tough one for a while. It was a tough one with which the Supreme Court contended uh, in the Bush one era, in the Clinton era, and with Trump as well. Uh, but this application of it to Trump as a former president, I think is much more straightforward. Trump can be prosecuted by the federal government quite clearly. He's not the president of the United States, and those paradoxes don't apply. So, Maddie, obviously this line of argument from President Trump's legal team plays into the idea that the left is very invested in, that he wants to be and will be a dictator now. And the <laughs> it's sort of funny to, to have to say this, or this is actually part, part of our, our discourse, but Trump tried to walk this back, you know, and then the Fox down hall is like, no, I don't want to be a dictator, and uh, said retribution actually is going to be too busy for <laughs> revenge when he is uh, reelected again, and the ultimate retribution is success in, in making America great. But but obviously, when your lawyer is like, yeah, he can, he can send SEAL Team 6, and, and you can't prosecute him as, as something that's going to be noticed by the other side. Yeah, I mean, so I think it was in 2016 that, that Trump said um, that he could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and he wouldn't wouldn't lose any voters. Um, and at the time, that seemed like a completely ridiculous thing to say. And and yet, in the years since, it seems almost true. I mean, he hasn't killed anyone, obviously, but he's done a lot of things that if it were anyone else, you would think mm -hmm. it would be highly politically damaging, Um even career ruining, and he just does seem to have this incredible political immunity, and immunity in the sense of, of his popularity. Now, political immunity in that sense is not the same thing as legal immunity, and Trump's enemies and the left conflate the two all the time, and we, we've talked about that on this podcast with the, the Robert Kagan piece, and and I mean, that's just one, one example among, among, among countless but it doesn't really help things when Trump does it himself. And that's what was happening here. Now, of course, the, the Federal Appeals Court panel um, met, met this claim with, with a great degree of skepticism. And I think Charlie's given, given the reasons for that. And it's, you know, on its face, it is just absurd, this idea um, that you could, you could kill your political opponent and, and be immune from the consequences. Um, but it, it just further degrades the discourse when, when such advances arguments like this are advances and this conflation continues between his political appeal and legal immunity. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not surprised this has caused a stir, but I, again, I'm not too worried about it because I don't really see it going anywhere. We're a little short on time, MBD, so I'm going to go straight to the next question to you first. Donald Trump will be convicted in the January 6th case prior to the election, yes or no? I think yes. I mean, they the way the the DC court has been pushing, it seems like they want to get there before the before the election, and maybe possibly as early as this summer. So, yeah, I think so. Charlie, I think he will too. Yeah, Maddie. Well, for the sake of consistency with my last answer, I'm going to say that he will. But I am feeling in a contrarian mood, so I was tempted to say that no, he will not. <laughs> you know, I think there's a greater chance the answer is no uh, than than I, I would have I would have thought. I just think the timing. There, obviously, Jack Smith is highly motivated. The judge is highly motivated. 
they, they want to get this thing done. But, you know, the thing that, that Andy has pointed out about uh, the Supreme Court's going to hear this uh, obstruction case with some of the January 6th defendants that, that really involves fundamental questions in, in the Trump trial. It's going to be hard for her to, to go before that with the trial, with the Supreme Court's going to decide this question, you know, what in two months or, or so um, after she'd start. Um, you know, do they drop half the case to, to eliminate that problem? Or do they go in July? Could they go in July and August? I guess so. I mean, they're, they're that motivated, but you can convict them in October. I mean, so I'm a very qualified yes. Um, so I'll make it a dangerous unanimous answer from all of us. With that, let's hear from our final sponsor this episode, the new book, The New Deal's War on the Bill of Rights, the untold story of FDR's concentration camp censorship and mass surveillance by David T. Beto, spying on citizens, censoring critics, imprisoning minorities. Those are the acts of dictators, not American presidents, or are they? The legacy of FDR enjoys regular acclaim from historians, politicians, and educators, but is there a dark side to this golden legacy? Independent Institute's latest book, The New Deal's War on the Bill of Rights, The Untold Story of FDR's Concentration Camp Censorship and Mass Surveillance by David Beto, unveils a much different portrait of FDR. You can order your copy on Amazon right now. The Independent Institute is a great outfit, and there's a great tradition on the right of uh, pointing, pointing uh, uh, th- these kind of things out. I, I, when I was cleaning out my <clears throat> parents' home, my great grandfather was the editor of a Republican newspaper in Tennessee, I, I believe, and I found all these uh, letters that he wrote to my his son, my my grandfather. And a major theme in all these letters was what a dictator they're written in the thirties. What what a terrible dictator FDR was, and it gave me pleasure to read a passage of one of these at a uh, National Review Institute Buckley dinner and get you know robust applause, which I'm sure my great grandfather would have appreciated. Uh, with that, let's hit a few other things before we go. MBD, you've been playing Super Smash Bros. Ultimate. Yes, with my uh, my sons, they uh, received a Nintendo Switch for Christmas and a few games. And I am um, not a gamer as an adult. I played when I was a kid, um, you know, Nintendo or Genesis those kind of things. But, um, you know, like Ecclesiastes, as I, as I became a man, I put childish things away until this Christmas. And actually I'm having a ton of fun playing as Mario or Luigi or these other weird characters and blasting my sons across the screen. Um, it's just a ton of fun, uh, being a kid again, at least for half an hour every day. So Maddie, you watched Shackleton. I did, yeah. It's the, the Kenneth Branagh version. I think it came out in the early 2000s and uh, had the opportunity to watch it because we were hosting my parents and my dad has the British Amazon account, which means he gets the British shows. Um, and so we we watched this in two parts. And it tells the story of, true story, of Ernest Shackleton's 1914 Antarctic expedition on the ship Endurance. And it's just an incredible story. Uh, very gripping. Um, unfortunately, I, I already knew the the ending before I watched it, but it was still very much worth watching. And Charlie, speaking of watching, you've been watching old football highlights with kids. And speaking of knowing endings as well, mm-hmm. I have been indulging the request for my two football mad sons to show them the greatest comebacks ever. This is what they're interested in at the moment. So I play the highlights for them on YouTube. My eldest son is pretty good at math, and he's good at working out from the context of a football game what is likely to happen. So he looks at the score and the number of timeouts and the field position and the clock, and he works out pretty well what's going to happen next. He also does this when we watch Greatest Comebacks, and... He simply doesn't believe me when I say that this is going to be an exception to what he's extrapolated out. So the other night we watched the famous Super Bowl comeback when the Patriots were down 28-3 to to the Atlanta Falcons, and there's four minutes left on the clock, and he's saying, 
no, 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 there's no way the Patriots can come back. And I'm saying, no, but, but they did. I know the score. I watched the game live. And he says, no, 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 you don't understand. And he's explaining to me why it is that this can't possibly happen, which would make sense in most circumstances. But of course, didn't in that game. I'm still struggling to convey this to him that I already watched this game and I know what happened. <laughs> so I talked last episode about the Christmas gifts I gave myself and talked about how thoughtful they they were. And I, I, I realize now how, how totally remiss I, I, I was. I actually got extremely thoughtful Christmas gifts from a relative of my wife who's a major collector, mostly of Civil War, but almost everything. You you uh, talk to him and he's like, yeah, you know, I, I don't collect much. I, I'm interested in stuff from the Civil War and the Revolutionary War, the Spanish-American War and World War One and World War II. And also I collect stamps and butterflies and, and old newspapers. And he's an incredibly interesting and generous guy. His house, if you go, there's a lot of uh, interesting and fascinating stuff on display. If you go to his house, there's a lot of interesting and fascinating stuff on display. But then, you know, the the the, the subject of Civil War rifles will, will come up and it'll go behind a curtain and there'll be like five <laughs> vintage, like real Civil War rifles, you know, he, he can take out. Um, anyway, he, he's one of these people, you, you, you got to be a little cautious about saying you like something or you're interested in it because he's going to give it to you. It's a little like Jack Fowler. You know, if, if, if our, our old colleague Jack Fowler, if you say, Jack, I like that sweater, he'll take it off and give it to you. So uh, j- just for the record, Jack, I hate all your sweaters, and I think they're hideous. But anyway, when, when I was in the, uh, visiting with this relative, I mentioned I like old newspapers, and then you know, package comes for Christmas. I was like, oh, no, here it is. And he, he gave me two vintage copies, Harper's Weekly from 1862. Uh, Harper's was a huge deal then, uh, just incredible, and two newspapers with, with real you know, headlines and news stories about Civil War events. So just incredibly generous gift. It's one thing to go out and buy someone a, a, a gift, you know, that's hard to get or costs a lot. It's another to take something from your own collection you've had a long time, just give it to someone because you think it'll it'll uh, cause them some uh, enjoyment. So that was really a wonderful thing. With that, it's time for our Editor's Picks. MBD! What's your pick? My pick is a little generalized this week. It is uh, Jim Garrity's coverage of the candidates as we head to the Iowa caucus. I just think um, as the, you know, we're headed towards this culmination point in Iowa. Um, his newsletter is becoming more and more essential by the day. Uh, and I liked also this week that he even found it in his heart to give Vivek a little credit for, um, some nice campaigning, uh, done in Iowa and, um, something we don't see a lot on NR site, but, um, I think he was giving credit where it was actually due. So, um, well done, Jim. Maddie, what's your pick? My pick is uh, similarly general, but it's Audrey Falberg's election coverage. I think she's just been absolutely first rate and has done a lot of on-the-ground reporting, and I've certainly found it very informative and helpful, so recommend that other people check her out. Charlie? We've had a debate in the magazine over whether or not the U.S. Constitution is pro-life. The latest piece is from Josh Craddock, uh, who's uh, responding to the argument that the Constitution is not pro-life. That is to say that the 14th Amendment doesn't apply to the unborn. That is my view as well. I don't think that the 14th Amendment, as it was originally understood, holds that the unborn are covered by its terms. But I have to say... The argument advanced by Josh Craddock in the latest issue is the best one I've seen laid out. It is compelling and it raises some theoretical and conceptual arguments that I think really do uh, make one think, or at least made me think. So I've enjoyed this public service of a debate. So my pick is Luther Abel's corner post in the immediate aftermath of our military strikes against the Houthis. Luther is our naval guy. He was in the Navy. He writes very compellingly and obviously is very well informed about naval matters. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast and you rebroadcast, retransmission, or count this game without the express written permission of National Review magazine. It's strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shuddy, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Maddie. Thank you, MBD. Thanks to C-SPAN 
site neutrality, and the New Deal's war on the Bill of Rights. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.